Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week since the outbreak of the pandemic, I've hosted a conference call to discuss aspects of COVID-19. The discussion follows a unique format. Each speaker only gets six minutes. This keeps the conversation concise, interesting, and informative. After everyone has a chance to speak, there is a question and answer period. I am particularly excited about this Sunday's program. Today we will hear from 11 young adults who will speak about their COVID experience. This will be a marathon session of just three minutes per kid. The young people on the show were chosen not at random. All these young speakers are friends of mine, and I know them because I'm also friends with their parents, many of whom have already spoken on previous episode of What Happens Next. I will describe each of the speakers in turn, as well as my relationship with their parents, to give you some context. Our first speaker today will be Charlotte Novi. Charlotte is a rising sophomore at Vanderbilt. I got to know Charlotte when she was my daughter, Hannah, a fellow equestrian rider. You may recall that Charlotte's dad, Mike, joined us a few weeks ago to discuss challenges in the tequila market. Charlotte will discuss the quality of her online learning experience. Our second speaker is my daughter, Hannah who is a rising sophomore at the University of Pennsylvania. Hannah will discuss issues of college socialization. Next up is Josh Agani. You met Josh's dad, Victor, in one of the early episodes of What Happens Next. Josh is an entrepreneur who will discuss the challenges in starting a new business during COVID. My, jo- my son, Jonathan, will be the next speaker. John is a rising freshman at Northwestern University. John will speak about the positive lifestyle changes he has made during COVID. Next up is Audrey Shapiro. You met Audrey's dad, Tom, a few months ago on the show. He described how New York City's high-end real estate will be in a world of pain. Today, you will hear from Audrey, who is a rising senior at Brown, who will speak enthusiastically about self-discovery. You will find that she is a bundle of positive energy. Kyle Rosenbluth follows Audrey. Kyle's dad, Jeff, is one of my oldest friends, and I had the pleasure of working with Jeff for over a decade at Solomon Brothers. Kyle is a recent graduate of Penn, and he is now a filmmaker. Kyle will discuss the challenges of a creative artist during the pandemic. Next up is Jess Agani. That's Josh's sister. Jess is a recent graduate of Penn and currently a real estate analyst with KKR. Jess will talk about her experience as a young professional without in-person training. Anna Schell is the next speaker. Anna's dad, Jeff, spoke to us twice on this program. Jeff is the CEO of NBC Universal, and he discussed the troubles with opening theme parks. Jeff's daughter, Anna, is a senior at Harvard, Westlake High School, and she will discuss the mental health of young adults. Anna will be followed by a professional psychologist, Jeremy Corfine, who will make observations about the current challenges to kids' mental health. Jennifer Bloom is a top college admissions advisor and author of In, College Admissions and Beyond. I've asked Jennifer to discuss how to stand out in the admissions process during the pandemic limitations. And then back to more kids. Lauren Teicholtz is a rising junior at Trinity High School in New York City. Lauren's dad, Colin, spoke on week one about the pandemic's impact on the global fixed income markets. Lauren will discuss political activism on TikTok and Instagram. After Lauren, you will hear from Justin Benjamin. Justin's dad, Jeff, worked with me at Sound Brothers as well. Justin just graduated from Dalton High School and was accepted to Yale, where he is now taking a gap year. I look forward to asking Justin about his internship at What Happens Next. Our final speaker is Judah Huberman. I first met Judah when he shared a cabin with my son Jonathan at Camp Horseshoe in Wisconsin. Judah is taking a gap year and will work in Israel for an ambulance service. Okay, that is our agenda for today. 
I want to make a quick plug for next week's program on education that will be co-hosted by my high school debate partner, Jay Green. This will be a wide-ranging conversation on teaching methods, how to help foster kids, and teaching college freshmen calculus online. In three weeks, on September 20th, one of the topics will be pandemic literature. We will discuss Catherine Ann Porter's short novella, Pale Horse, Pale Rider. It is a 1918 flu short story classic that is less than 100 pages long, so please begin your reading immediately. I sent out a survey to our What Happens Next listeners yesterday, and I want to thank the couple hundred people who responded. Here's what you had to say. With regard to online education at America's top universities, you thought that the quality of last spring's semester was mediocre, but you expect it will improve significantly in the fall. For those freshmen and sophomores who cannot live in campus dorms, you were pretty much evenly split for having your college kids live at home or live near campus. I was very surprised that you were also evenly split about encouraging your freshman child to take a gap year. And if you did take a gap year, you would suggest getting a job and using your time to read extensively. Just 3% of you said if you were taking a gap year yourself that you would goof off and not get a job. Good luck enforcing that. You are now getting more pessimistic about the timing of returning to in-person university classrooms. 30% see in-person classes by the spring, 15% by next summer, and over 40% think it will be fall 2021 or even later. In our last survey, just two and a half months ago, it was universally expected that in-person classes would be back by spring. Looks like the return to normalcy has been delayed. With regard to young adults in their first jobs, you are very concerned about the quality of on-the-job training due to the difficulty of learning via Zoom. Our mature adult surveyors believe that college kids are going to behave prudently with COVID precautions, not because they're worried about their own health, but instead they want to protect their parents and grandparents. Let's see what their actual behavior looks like when they're hanging out and drinking at those off-campus parties. 85% of you think that a vaccine will be available in the period beginning this winter and a year from today. Let's hope so. This call is being recorded. I'd like to now turn to my co-host, Rick Banks. Rick, go ahead. That's quite an introduction. I just wanted to add how excited I am that we're able to have this cross-generational conversation, which is really modeling uh, what we need so much more of. On to the speakers. Back to you, Larry. Okay. Our first speaker, as I mentioned, is Charlotte Novi. Charlotte is a sophomore at Vanderbilt. Go ahead, Charlotte. Thank you so much. In 2016, as a sophomore in high school, I transferred from a small private school in my town to Stanford University's online high school. I was hesitant to make the switch. I would risk losing the value of being face-to-face -face with others in school. But as a competitive equestrian, I decided that I was willing to make this sacrifice to move forward with my goals in show jumping. Little did I know, this switch would be one of the best decisions I've made. The academics were incredible, student body was engaging, and I've made friends that I'm still so close with. Then, as a freshman in college, on March 9th of 2020, I got the email from Vanderbilt University saying that classes were shifting online. I didn't worry too much about the switch. I had done this all before. But the new online Vanderbilt was nowhere near the same experience. Classes were a chore, professors were impossible to communicate with, and my friendships were slipping away. Despite the fact that both online classes were conducted by top two universities with some of the best faculty and brightest students, there was clearly a drastic difference in the two experiences. I boiled the differences down to one thing, the mindsets of the professors and students. At Stanford Online, professors embraced the online format and worked to overcome any limitations of the technology. 
They would have Socratic discussions, encourage collaboration beyond the virtual classroom, and get to know their students and their non-academic lives outside of class time. Then, at Vanderbilt, professors emphasized the limitations of online schooling. They acted as if it was an insurmountable barrier to learning. Some professors still held class regularly, but adamantly stated that academics were not a priority during a pandemic. Other professors canceled the classes altogether, telling us that our grades would stay as is and no more lectures would be held nor exams and assignments given. When professors tell their students that academics don't really matter, the students are going to deprioritize school. In other words, when professors don't care, students won't care. Now let's talk about the students' mindset. My peers at Stanford Online embraced the online format. We treated online classes just as we would those in person. Additionally, we regularly went to office hours, made study groups, and did group lab experiments from our own kitchens. I also made some of my best friends through Stanford Online. Things like 13-hour time zone differences weren't a barrier to us. We would do homework, eat meals, and share stories about our days together, all via Skype, every single day. We acted virtually just as we would have in person. At Vanderbilt, my classmates have not yet embraced our new reality. They would skip online classes, claiming that they teach you nothing and that they would make up for lost time once things return back in person. They stopped turning in assignments and opted into the pass-fail option that professors offered. And they gave up on friendships, not realizing that relationships don't require being in close proximity. When I tried talking to my friends on Zoom, they would end the call if there was any lull in the conversation. This felt awkward to them. They weren't used to the online format and they weren't willing to learn to use it effectively. But the reality is that the online format for schools, work, and social interactions is going to be the new normal. Once people learn that Zoom is here to stay, even after the pandemic, they can start to take it seriously. People will realize that it can be an advantage rather than an impediment, bringing people who are geographically far apart close together. I see schools like Stanford Online as a way of the future, and I challenge my university to see it the same way, and realize this is not a grim new reality, but instead an exciting opportunity. Thank you so much. Excellent, Charlotte. Our next speaker is Hannah Bernstein. This is my daughter. Hannah is a rising sophomore at Penn. She's going to talk about socialization in college. Go ahead, Hannah. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Switching to an online format halfway through my freshman year was challenging. Not only was this format new to me, it was also new and unfamiliar to my professors. It was especially problematic for my eldest professor, who is in her late 70s and could hardly operate a PowerPoint in the best of times. The process of bringing in-person classes online was rushed, and of course it showed. My seminar classes were a relatively easy change. They maintained the same structure and had a similar sense of community through synchronous classes and had accountability in the form of checking attendance. However, there was a lot of wasted time, and it felt that some of the course content could have been delivered in a better way than through Zoom. My lecture classes were fully asynchronous and heavily depended on personal discipline and responsibility. There was no one to make sure you were listening, attentive, or even awake. I struggled to show up to these classes without the support of other students or the accountability of in-person lectures. Although I had difficulty with online classes, there was not much to do this summer, so I took three summer classes, which were a much better experience than my spring semester classes. In choosing these classes, I kept in mind what I appreciated from my spring semester classes. I learned that synchronous courses are much more conducive to my style of learning, so I found classes that prioritized discussion. My favorite class I took this summer was Introduction to Psychology. This class was formulated for online purposes, and it showed. During each class, we would break into pairs to work on a project that helped us understand the contents of the textbook and recorded lectures. This class combined the best components of lectures and seminars. 
The content that could be learned on my own was asynchronous, and processing was done together, which allowed students to maintain a connection to the course and to other students. My summer classes have taught me what to look for when choosing my fall semester classes. Originally, I hoped to take two theater courses, but it was clear that I should wait to take these courses in person. I stayed away from choosing large lectures that were mainly asynchronous. Instead, I chose courses that had a mixture of synchronous and asynchronous components that I imagine will make the best use of the online format. While the change to online education has been a shock, the social lives of students are even more affected. When I think of where I made my friends in the first year of college, they were overwhelmingly outside of the classroom. In fact, I met many of my friends because they lived on the same floor as me. Proximity matters, which is a different opinion than Charlotte. But um, I did not make my friends through my online summer courses. Rather, I spent most of my time social distancing with the 10 students who lived in my area. However, this small semester of Penn will be entirely online. I'm attending my online classes from an apartment off campus with a roommate who is a very close friend, surrounded by other Penn kids. After moving in, I was shocked to see as many students as I did. Because I will be spending time with my friends at Penn, I expect my social experience will not be too impacted by the online experience. In an ideal world, all students will be able to live off campus and get to know their peers. Of course, this is impossible, but I hope that as online classes become more normalized, it will be easier to meet new people through the medium. Thanks. Well done, Anna. Okay. Our next speaker is Josh Agani. Uh, Josh is a graduate of Penn. Uh, he finished a two-year analyst program at Citibank, and he is now a budding entrepreneur. Josh, take it away. Thanks, Larry. Um, as we've heard for the last 24 weeks, COVID has had powerful impacts on people and businesses, mostly negative. I started a student finance business called MiaShare about a year ago, and without doubt, we've experienced some of those COVID-related setbacks. However, on balance, the new world created by the pandemic has helped us gain a foothold, accelerate our growth, and reduce our costs. We partner with vocational schools to build income share agreement financing programs where students pay a percentage of their income with a cap for up to 48 months, if and only if they land a high paying job. We have nine partner schools, three welding academies, three coding boot camps, two medical assistant schools, one agricultural business school. COVID hurt us in two relatively obvious ways. Firstly, the job market is weaker. Income share agreement repayments are entirely based on income post-graduation, so this is, a, this is a concern. However, we've mitigated this problem by making sure the custom terms per program factor in lower salaries and longer job prospecting times. We also structure significant first loss risk onto the schools, which helps incentivize schools, gives students cheaper terms, boosts our funds returns, and reduces our risk. Secondly, my first phone call to an investor for our equity fund didn't go very well, as it was at the end of March when COVID had just made it to the U.S. Although we were able to eventually raise $3.7 million, which was almost twice our goal, our fundraising would have been faster and bigger were it not for the pandemic. On the positive side, here are five unexpected positive COVID impacts. Firstly, the funding delay I just mentioned actually enabled us to bake the business more fully before rounding up the investments. I suspect this was the main reason we raised more than our goal. Secondly, remote work. I almost signed a $40,000 office lease in New York City. Luckily, this didn't happen, and a remote setup came naturally. Productivity is high, 
and Slack, GitHub, Zoom, and email are doing what's needed for us. Going remote also enabled me to build a team from a countrywide job market. I think my, my team is higher quality than it would have been. Third, sales efficiency. Our first school was a welding academy in Gillette, Wyoming. I spent three full business days between travel and staying in Gillette to convince the owner, Tyler, to work with us. Now COVID has made it totally acceptable for all of our leads to meet with us via Zoom. We're currently handling the onboarding of almost 10 schools at the same time, which would have been impossible under the old ways of doing business. Fourth, our vocational schools are seeing higher enrollment because people now have the time to get new skills and our low-cost vocational schools are appealing. And finally, the pandemic has increased the attractiveness of investing in projects with a positive social impact, especially ones with attractive financial returns. Our first student is about to graduate and we're on track to deploy our first fund by early 2021. In today's uncertain world, the one thing that you can count on is your education, and students are choosing our income share agreements as a more flexible, affordable, and lower risk way of investing in their future. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Josh. Uh, just for the record, I'm one of the first investors in that enterprise. Okay. That's true. Our next uh, speaker is my son, Jonathan. Jonathan is a rising freshman at Northwestern University. Jonathan, if you're on the line, go ahead. When quarantine hit, my family fled to Glencoe, Illinois, a small suburb where we go to every summer. After a few weeks of enjoying the time alone, the activities I'd enjoyed doing, playing video games and sleeping, were not cutting it. My days became increasingly long, even though my daily activities had not changed much from previous summers in Glencoe. My pre-pandemic life consisted of the majority of my days spent inside. Junior year, I spent most of my time studying to get into college. In my free time, I'd watch movies and hang out with friends in our apartments. When the lockdown started, I realized I hadn't spent time exploring outside of my bubble. While most people had to learn to entertain themselves from home, I made a promise to myself that I would no longer let time pass me by. I set out to explore Illinois and to be a doer. While this was hard given public safety precautions, it forced me to get creative and to consider doing activities I had never done before. Quarantining in a new environment forced me to change my habits, which led me to appreciate a completely contrasting lifestyle. My quarantine was eye-opening as it gave me a newfound appreciation for new experiences and it taught me to take advantage of my surroundings. Before quarantine, I dreaded coming to Glencoe as I had no community here and I did not have the same access and lifestyle. As my situation changed, so did my activities. I would bike to town, grow food at home, and frequently go to the beach. I began, appreciation, I began appreciating nature and a more tranquil and quiet lifestyle. While in previous summers I either committed myself to a job or community service, I spent this summer riding my bike through the botanical gardens, hiking at Fort Sheridan, and going to farmer's markets. As life came to a standstill, I was able to step out of the house and start appreciating the opportunities around me. About two months into quarantine, the DMV opened. As I already had my learner's permit, I hastily got my license. With my parents' car, I was able to explore different restaurants across the shore of Lake Michigan. I was able to engross myself into each town's personality and culture, such as my new favorite town of Highwood, which combines aspects of Italian and Hispanic communities. While I revisited New York for three weeks during the pandemic, I stayed downtown and realized how much of the city I hadn't explored during my time there. While my community and bubble was uptown, COVID led me to step out of my comfort zone and explore areas I'd previously not been interested in. I found that these neighborhoods were exciting, vibrant, and full of life, even during the pandemic. The quarantine put severe restraints on my generation. 
As I was forced to alter my lifestyle, I burst my bubble and expanded my horizons. By putting limitations on my life, COVID led me to rebel against the stay-at-home nature of the pandemic, to instead create new habits and to explore new experiences, while at a six-foot distance. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, our next speaker, Audrey Shapiro, took her LSAT today, spent five hours doing that, and is still able to speak on the call. Uh, she's a rising senior at Brown University, and she's going to chat about self-discovery. Audrey, go ahead. I love college. I love drinking. I love women, says Asher Roth in his notorious anthem, I Love College. College. It's the age of bad decisions, late nights, and blurry memories. While I've heard many researchers talk about the academic and social implications of college becoming virtual, I've seldom heard people discuss what exactly happens when the college lifestyle we have accepted is taken away. So I'm here today to talk about, from my own personal experience, what has happened to me when all the excess of college life is gone. On March 21st, I was sent home from studying abroad in London. Suddenly, 4 a.m. nights at Cuckoo Club are replaced with 4 p.m. dinners and board games and a 10 p.m. bedtime. But want to know what's more pathetic than a Saturday night playing Yahtzee with your 17-year-old brother's girlfriend? Actually, liking playing Yahtzee with your 17-year-old brother's girlfriend. I finally had quiet. Frequently, I hear college being referred to as a time of self-discovery, but I realized that after each year, I felt more confused. While some attribute this confusion to a natural part of growing up, a large piece of me is beginning to believe that it may be in part due to the lifestyle we have become so accustomed to in college. I mean, how could you possibly have time to find yourself on four hours of sleep, a grueling hangover, and a final exam that you know you're about to have to pull an all-nighter for? And having everything that supposedly makes college the best years of your life taken away, I was able to begin to find myself. This quiet led me to rethink the people I wanted to surround myself with, the things that I cared about, what I wanted my future to look like, and how I wanted others to treat me. I realized before that the majority of my relationships were built on activities we enjoyed sharing rather than the values that we shared. This realization led me to end a three-year relationship, rethink many of the friendships I have formed throughout my life, and the direction I saw my career going in. All of these things, including the aspects of college experience, were things that I deeply cherished. But by letting go of this things that had so much supposed meaning, I was able to find things that moved my core on a deeper level, like those Yahtzee games. At the end of the day, I can attribute a large piece of the personal growth that I went through to having a stable home environment, which many kids do not have the privilege of having. I can honestly say that I've never been happier in my life. And while missing out on a proper college experience is in many ways disappointing, by letting go of this experience, I've been able to find myself. Thank you. Fabulous. Okay, our next speaker is um, Kyle Rosenbooth. Kyle is a recent graduate of Penn and a documentary filmmaker. Kyle, go ahead. Thanks, Larry. As with countless other industries, the film industry was completely thrown for a loop when the pandemic hit. For myself and my business partner, Daniel, back in the fall, we were just out of college avidly seeking commercial and client work to get our video production business going and to eventually fund our larger, more creative projects. When an opportunity arose in February to attend the Banff Center for the Arts in Alberta, Canada, to finish our longtime documentary project, Arctic Summer, 
we jumped at the chance. Of course, halfway through our residency on March 12th, we were asked to go home because of the pandemic. At the same time, our commercial and client outreach was put in a complete pause as the whole industry reeled from the pandemic. Film sets quickly shut down, production companies closed their doors, and movie theaters were shuttered for the foreseeable future. The only projects that continued were the rare few that happened to be at just the right stage in their timeline, post-production. So Daniel and I retreated from Canada back to my parents' home in Wyoming, and realizing that we were some of the lucky ones, did the only thing that we could do, finishing editing our documentary. While the pandemic completely halted certain aspects of our business, we consider ourselves extremely lucky for two reasons. One, we made the smart decision to stay together when the pandemic hit. And two, the bulk of the remaining work to be done on Arctic summer was work that could be done right in front of us on our laptops. For us, this turned out to be an extremely productive period of time where we had no distractions, social or otherwise, and could pour ourselves into our work. As the weeks turned into months, we finished editing our doc, raised funds for a composer, sound designer, and colorist, worked with them all remotely, of course, and this leads us to today, where we have a finished documentary short that is ready to be submitted to film festivals. For independently made documentaries, the key venue for showing your film is at film festivals, small and large around the world. The hardest part of this project, however, is not behind us. Getting into these festivals is hard enough, and with COVID causing many to move to a restricted high online hybrid model, several of the top festivals are reducing their selections for the upcoming year. Additionally, submitting to festivals costs money, and it's become increasingly hard to raise funds for documentary projects during the pandemic. All that being said, it's not all negative. With film festivals transitioning to being partially online, they are forced to become less of an industry-only event and more of a consumer event. No more excessive lines to get into premieres, no more instant selling out of the most anticipated screenings, and for the films that do get accepted, there is a much larger potential audience because the films play online. We look forward to getting Arctic Summer out into the world this winter at a time when we could all use movies to learn, to experience, and sometimes just to escape from the craziness of our world. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. Okay. Uh, now we turn back to another Hagani. This is Jess Hagani. Uh, she is a 2018 graduate of Penn. Uh, she's now an analyst, an analyst with Colbert, Kravis, and Roberts, which is KKR, and she's in the real estate investment group. She's going to talk about apprenticeship. Go ahead, Jess. Thanks, Larry. It's just past 3 p.m. in New York on a Sunday. Now would be the time I would be heading to the office and settling into my desk for, for some Sunday afternoon work. Lovely. Sunday afternoons in Jackson, Wyoming have been a lot better than that, and they certainly don't end with a 70-mile-per-hour white-knuckle midnight drive down the FDR in an UberX. I love New York, but I'll be honest, my commute, not so much. I've been working at KKR on the real estate team in New York for the past year. My first six months were spent in the office in Nine West, and since March, when KKR closed their offices globally, I've been in Wyoming. In no way do I mean to minimize the suffering and hardship the pandemic has inflicted on many millions of people, but Larry asked me to focus on my experiences with remote learning and working, weighing the positives and negatives as they've impacted me. So here goes. The negatives will never be offset by Zoom chats, shared screens, or conference calls. The overwhelming sense of community and collaboration that KKR facilitates in the office environment is too special for this virtual life. 
the bullpen chatter, walking into my direct office to go through a deal live, touring buildings and meeting partners, hearing about everyone's weekend and Monday morning staffing meetings, my computer working faster, and late night team dinner orders and weekend work sessions during crunch time are all part of a junior team member's team members' apprenticeship and reasons why we join firms that care so much about developing their human capital. And then there's the social aspect outside of work, which is also irreplaceable. But as I have slowly started to see my friends out here again, the months of social isolation have started to become distant memories. On the other hand, there have been great positives to working remotely and efforts taken by the firm and my team that has made this time effective and productive. At work, we've progressed far past sterile video conferences to build community and to ensure we're getting the most out of this environment, albeit a strange one. We have regular scheduled meetings to emulate our week structure as we would in the office, and our team built in additional check-ins to make sure we stay connected outside of only discussing deals. To give you a feel for what this is like, in one of our first Zoom week, uh, in one of our first weeks of Zoom life, the head of real estate set the tone by asking us to bring our pets to happy hour. What ensued was 50 mini Zoom screens covered in puppies and cats, perched on desks and chairs, staring directly into the camera, keeping us laughing for over an hour. Beyond this, formal barriers have come down in unexpected ways. I've had live tours in my colleagues' homes, met their families, helped them through technology mishaps completed workout challenges together, built a woman in real estate group with a friend and former colleague using Zoom meetings rather than having to get attendees all in the same room at the same time across the country, and have done more screening with my principal than she ever would have had time to spend with me sitting behind my desk in the office. I've peppered her with questions I was too shy to ask in an open floor plan, and I feel my growth has been exponential in this environment. The enormous amount of community that has formed as a result of adapting to and pushing through this disruptive moment in history has brought us together in ways we never expected. This is what adversity does. More concretely, Take Air's business has grown dramatically in the past six months with the purchase of life insurance company Global Atlantic, which has had the effect of growing assets under management by almost $80 billion, about a 25% increase. This transaction was sourced, underwritten, and signed up through the pandemic, and it was an opportunity I was fortunate to work on and might not have had presented itself in the same way had we all been at the office. Being back in the office is a matter of when, not if. We all expect work won't be the same as it was before the pandemic, but how it will be different remains to be seen. For me, it's less the changes that are important, but more the relationships built with each other that I hope will last when life's day-to-day distractions are put back into our equation. Well, there's one change that I am banking on, that my commute to my desk stays as enjoyable as it has been since March. You can catch me on a city bike or maybe even an electric scooter. The days of my subway rides and Uber drives over. Thank you, Jessica. Okay, um, our next speaker is Anna Schell. Anna is a senior in high school at Harvard Westlake. Uh, Anna, go ahead. Thanks, Larry. The COVID-19 pandemic has had an obvious impact on the mental health of America's young people. However, it's not as bleak as it first may seem. Firstly, I want to talk about family. In mid-March, as many of you know, my dad tested positive for COVID-19. Tests took nine days, his treatment was an anti-malarial that rendered him worse, and the helplessness of knowing no one who could sympathize nor offer advice was overwhelming. We are unbelievably lucky that he made a full recovery, and ultimately, the benefits of him staying home seem to be outweighing the cost. Prior to COVID, he spent two-thirds of his time in New York. So as an only child, it was just me and my mom on weekdays. Now I see him every day, more of a blessing than a curse. 
and that initial stress is now offset by the relief of knowing he walks out the door every day with the force field of immunity around him. Secondly, it's important to acknowledge how the pandemic has forced my generation to adjust our means of socializing. As I write this, I'm sitting in silence with a friend on FaceTime who is also doing work of his own. Over the past few months, we have found ways to safely see each other in person, but FaceTime has often been our way of supplementing that silent companionship that we often felt while working together at school. I probably spend upwards of three hours a day sitting on FaceTime with someone, talking or working or browsing social media together but apart. So this pales in comparison to face-to-face human interaction we have been able to make do. Though I do miss my, quote, school friends, a term my friends and I have coined to refer to those we exclusively interact with at school, maintaining a positive and hopeful outlook has prevented me from spiraling into the bleak what-ifs. However, hope has seemed to be a common theme amidst my generation for the past few months. Social media has been our life raft, allowing many of us to connect, socialize, and even become activists. So those initial months of March and April were undoubtedly lonely, terrifying, and deeply saddening. In the past few months, it seems like we have taken a turn for the better. Finding means of socializing is of the utmost importance for students like me who are, amidst a global pandemic, applying to college. The admissions process is already flawed and overwhelming enough without the added uncertainties brought about by COVID, and connecting with others and maintaining a support network I've learned is vital. The two main themes I've found to be particularly relevant during this academic time have been accountability and responsibility. Firstly, I've realized that how I spend my time outside of class is critical, and without the pressures of a normal school environment, I'm the only one able to hold myself accountable for how that time is spent. With the majority of universities opting to go test optional, grades and standardized testing scores are no longer such distinguishing factors. Extracurriculars are more important than ever. On the subject of standardized testing, it's important to discuss the second theme, responsibility. The majority of college applicants take their tests at the end of their junior and start of their senior years. This is not an option for those in my grade. I am, however, one of the lucky ones. To my great relief, I was able to successfully take my necessary tests prior to COVID. But for many of my friends, the stress of not having them or studying for dates that will likely be scrapped once again has been overwhelming. Thus, I believe it is important for seniors like me to acknowledge our helplessness our lack of responsibility for many of the academic setbacks we have faced because of COVID. These are times of unequivocal uncertainty. And to all the young people listening in, I wish you the best of luck. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Anna. Okay, um, now we turn to a professional psychologist, uh, Jeremy Chlorphene. Uh, Jeremy's going to talk about mental health for young adults. Go ahead, Jeremy. Hey, thanks, Larry. Thanks, Rick. Um, So what the research and clinical evidence supports about trauma and to look at the pandemic as a type of trauma is that premorbid functioning prior to the trauma has significant impact in how people respond to any one or multiple traumatic events. So to understand the pandemic's impact, let me use a swimming analogy. We all have different swimming skill levels. Good swimmers can manage most waters where poor swimmers struggle to stay afloat and get through it. So now let's add 10-pound equal weights, also known as the pandemic, to everyone trying to swim. Those good swimmers adjust, but poor swimmers are in a world of hurt. And I believe the report and data coming out today regarding teens and young adults' mental health reflects this current turbulent reality. So what's changed? To oversimplify, we have lost structure and routine, coupled with the fear of getting an unknown virus. Structure and routine creates predictability, which gives us agency, purpose, distraction from our overactive brains, lowers anxiety, allows us to conserve energy. We are all confronting an existential void and threat every day, particular teens and young adults. Every facet of our lives has been impacted. Work, school, sports, faith, arts, socializing, hanging out with friends, you name it. 
every one of these systems have been negatively impacted and our response has been elevated levels of anxiety and depression. On top of it, because the pandemic is truly a novel phenomena, we don't have go-to coping mechanisms to easily adjust and adapt to this reality. Social isolation is tolerable for so long, which obviously has now created a predictable powder keg scenario for political and social unrest, which we're seeing. So there's approximately 60 million Americans currently living with diagnosed mental health and substance use disorders. Teens and young adults are significantly part of this group, which are unfortunately more susceptible to trauma. Also note that approximately one-third of our country lives alone, which is a new high, and approximately 60% under the age of 35 do not have a partner or spouse. Isolation and loneliness is a real factor for this group. The CDC reported that this past June, 25% of teens and young adults have seriously considered suicide due to the pandemic. This group is considerably higher than older adults, which reported about a 10% suicidal ideation, and unfortunately, minorities are hit much harder. This past March, Disaster Distress Helpline, that's a mouthful, Federal Crisis Hotline saw an approximate 900 increase in call volume compared to last year. So what we're seeing is that teens and young adults who are lower risk for medical complications than older adults are experiencing worse mental health symptoms. The various factors that contribute are obvious. Trauma from the disease, grief over loss of life, knowing people who are sick, fear of getting sick, unprecedented physical distancing, and major financial and housing insecurities and usual huge political unrest with a 24-hour nonstop news cycle, which keeps activating our emotions, to say the least. Typical symptoms are going to be chronic worry, sadness, physical challenges such as sleep disturbances, headache, stomachache, loss of motivation. Healthy socializing is critical to forming identity and provides feeling of connection. Hanging out with friends is as important as oxygen. Even though this past summer, a lot of us have adjusted, but going back to high school and college and trying to get back to work has been a huge practical and emotional challenge for everyone. Adding to the anxiety, who doesn't now think if you get a sore throat, a headache, or an allergy symptom, the first thought is, oh my gosh, I got COVID, right? There's also been big increases in substance abuse. If you were sober prior to the pandemic, there are high prob- there's a high probability you have relapse, whether it's alcohol, weed, prescription drugs, or significant weight gain. Okay, and very important, if anyone on the call knows someone who is struggling with depression, is mentioning verbally out loud the risk of suicide or I want to hurt myself, they need intervention immediately. In many respects, this population is grieving the life they were supposed to have. Their plans have changed and don't know how it will get better and get back to normal. However, there are some exceptions. For some anxious and introverted young folk, they've been actually a little less affected. The pandemic actually gives them a break from the pressure to be more social, productive, and achieving. And it's kind of an equalizer forcing everyone to be isolated. I I actually have a client who said to me, hey man, I wasn't doing much before the pandemic, I'm not doing much after the pandemic. So what coping strategies are helpful during this pandemic? So last week on What Happens Next, Dr. Paul Rosen discussing adapting, to paraphrase what he said, people will get used to it. I totally agree with him, but I'm not sure what we're getting used to. I'm not sure when life is gonna get back to normal, And I'm pretty high probability, I don't know what normal is going to look like when we get back to it. So under these life circumstances, decent coping strategies to fight anxiety and depression fall into four categories. Structure and self-care, mental attitude, getting creative, getting professional help. So number one, the pandemic has been an absolute buzzkill for routine. We are more isolated, spending more time on screens, 
and there's a drop, huge drop-off in self-care. Eating and sleep schedules have gotten out of whack, and it's critical to make efforts to establish good eating times and improving quality and quantity of sleep. Professionally, if I can't get someone a decent night's sleep, it's impossible to work on other life issues. And remember, you can't always control when you fall asleep, but you can establish your wake-up time, which can, ha- which can help recalibrate your sleep-wake cycle. In addition to diet and sleep, make every effort to get outside, exercising, biking, walking, and you have to get sunlight. As much sunlight as possible, which is critical to improving mental health, your immune system, and brain chemistry. And of course, you've got to fight the negative addiction behaviors. Two, improving attitude. So many of your callers have talked about attitude. Isn't just more about positive thinking. So much of our culture is all based on trying to be happy. But really, the subcontext is that we are always trying to be comfortable. The goal is to build frustration and boredom tolerance. Problems are rarely as bad as we think, or rather, they are precisely as bad as we think. In essence, practicing mindfulness techniques, which is learning to tolerate our reality rather than trying to escape it, is key to managing our negative emotions. And third, it's about being creative and leaning into something different. Many of the speakers today, very impressive, are incredibly, incredibly good at adapting and figuring out new ways to adjust to their reality, whether it's a gap year, new life plans, trying new things, new music, new literature, discovering faith. Interestingly, because of the pandemic, you now have permission to try to do something different without judgment. That can be extremely liberating and positive. And fourth and last, seek out professional help if you feel you need it. Telehealth is available for finding support through these difficult times. I'll end on that. Thanks, Jeremy. A lot to think about. Um, all right, our next speaker is Jennifer Bloom. Jennifer is a college admissions counselor. She worked with my own children. She's written a book called In College Admissions and Beyond. Jennifer, go ahead. Thanks, Larry. That was a really good um, summary of the psychological impact of COVID. Um, I'll take it in a slightly different direction. So I'm going to talk about three things today or touch on three three topics today. First, the current status of college admissions, and second, how COVID is impacting this. And finally, what this all means for applicants. So parents, raise your hands if you think you wouldn't get into your alma mater today. Most of you should have your hands raised right now. Congratulations, you're all correct. College is harder to get into. In the 15 years that I've been advising families, there's been a nearly 70% decline in admissions rates at a top 10 school. For example, if you applied to the University of Chicago in 2006, you had a 38% chance of getting in. In 2020, that's 5.9%. US News and World Report rankings have an outsized influence on this process. Deans of admissions are beholden to these rankings. They keep or lose their jobs depending on their school's movement up or down that list. As a result, they manage that process incredibly carefully. Sometimes colleges will even play games to increase their rankings. For example, colleges will use early decision to increase yield rates, which is one of the main inputs into the rankings. They'll accept as many as 60% of their class through ED to increase their yield. They'll also use sophisticated email and social media campaigns to ensure an overly large applicant pool. You know, those emails from Harvard encouraging your kid to apply, it's not necessarily because they're a shoe into the class. 
colleges need a lot of applicants to secure a 7% acceptance rate. But here's the good news. College is one of the few things that our country does at a world-class level, and the range of outstanding schools has gotten larger, and they may also be schools that you as parents did not apply to and were not popular when you applied. My own metric of a top college is really one that not only has high rankings, but it's also a school that will bring out the very best in your child and allow them to thrive. Now the topic everyone wants to hear about, admissions under COVID. So after many discussions with deans of admissions at top colleges over the past few weeks, here's the one takeaway. Unfortunately, there is no standardization around college planning this fall. Every college is approaching the crisis differently. Plus, as we've seen at UNC Chapel Hill and Notre Dame, it's a fluid situation. As you all know, some colleges are going hybrid, some are online, some are requiring additional summer semesters. Deferral and gap years are really in the low single digits at some schools and upwards at 30% at others. So here's what we know. One, in general, there are more students deferring and taking gap years. Two, according to every college I spoke with, the majority of gappers are privileged U.S. kids who can afford it. Three, some colleges are increasing their class of 2025, that's the class that's applying this fall, to counteract the influx of gappers and the loss of revenue from this past year, but other colleges are keeping their freshman class sizes constant. For the most part, international kids who accepted a spot are not deferring. They're on campus using satellite campuses or working virtually. And five, no admissions office is able to predict what will happen this fall. If the numbers will increase or decrease, international kids will apply or not as anyone's guess, but all the international families I'm working with, their kids are applying. Deans of admissions are in the dark. So what does this mean for college applicants? Here's my advice. While you can't ignore these variables, your job as a student or parent of a student is to stay the course. Focus on the areas you can control. So what does that mean? Pay attention to the basics. The following steps are not going to get you into college, but they will certainly keep you out. So first, focus on your grades. Take rigorous classes, build relationships with teachers, and even your high school college guidance counselors. This is important. It's important for outstanding letters of recommendation, and you need to do it if you're in-person or virtual. Number two, standardized testing. My advice is to continue prep. With semesters of no letter grades, ACT and ACT, SAT and ACT scores are still important. If you can take them, you should. For example, Bowdoin has been test optional for 50 years. And 70 to 80% of kids apply with test scores. Of course, there are kids that don't need to take these tests. They live in unsafe living conditions. They have parents who suffer job loss. They have food insecurity and more. I hope that's not your child. And third, yes, you can absolutely continue developing what I like to call your spike the topic of the required reading, otherwise known as your unique interest, your area of distinction under COVID. This is not a time off. Rather, it's really an opportunity to set yourself apart. From remote internships to virtual lab work, 
from mentorships with college professors to creating outdoor classes for underserved kids to free online college classes at the very best universities, there are tons of paths to deepen your spike. For example, I have future economists studying today's unprecedented fiscal policy. I have budding public health and epidemiologists studying disease transmission. And I have future education advocates creating programs to address decline under COVID. How you react to these restrictions will say a lot about your character, your resourcefulness, and your ability to be creative under tremendous stress. So following these steps will ensure that when you're ready to apply this fall, potentially, you'll have an application deeply attractive to many, many colleges, giving you the ultimate flexibility. We all know college is a lifelong brand worth investing in. Thanks, Larry. Fabulous, Jennifer. Okay, back to the kids. Um, our next speaker is Lauren Teicholtz. Lauren is a rising junior at Trinity High School in New York City. She's going to talk about political activism and TikTok. Go ahead. After the killing of George Floyd, protests led by young people broke out all over America. The combination of more free time during quarantine and limits on going outside meant that some of this activism traveled online, and Gen Z began to use social media apps as tools for political activism. The first app that really became a hub for Black Lives Matter activism was Instagram. In early June, there was an explosion of information posted on the app. Everyone I followed and everyone that followed me was posting and reposting Black Lives Matter content. If I wanted to go to a protest, I would look on Instagram to see the times and dates. If I wanted to sign, on, sign a petition, I would look on Instagram, and these petitions ended up getting hundreds of thousands of signatures. I first learned the terms qualified immunity or defunding the police, not from mainstream news, but from the Instagram posts of my peers. Everyone posted so much that it was considered tone deaf to not post. And Instagram is an incredibly powerful platform for this, but it's also a very performative platform. It's a highlights reel of your life. And as such, Instagram activism can become competitive and performative. There is a rise in virtue signaling. And a lot of people posted things that didn't actually have value. They didn't have any information or petitions or phone numbers. Their only purpose was to make the posters seem woke. This is why Instagram activism has been nicknamed slacktivism, because it can be very easy to post and it can be really hard to make a real impact. And while Instagram is limited in scope to just the people in your immediate network, an app like TikTok allows you to share ideas with a much broader range of people. Um, TikTok is a video sharing platform that you might know for dance videos, but there's actually a huge political community on TikTok, and it's very useful for organizing. Content and ideas can go viral really quickly, and your videos can rack up thousands of views even if you personally don't have a huge following. An example of this is when I and hundreds of thousands of my peers signed up for a Trump rally without actually wanting to go, and you all know how that turned out. Now the problem with TikTok lies in its algorithm, which recommends content to you based on what you like. This can create echo chambers in which every video you see is a video of someone that agrees with you. This can lead to radicalization to both the left and the right because your entire page fills with people promoting a single ideology. Um, there's also a one minute time limit on videos. So ideas are dumbed down to fit in that one minute um, space and misinformation can spread just as quickly as petitions. So in conclusion, TikTok and Instagram are both really powerful tools for political activism, but they can fall prey to fake news, radicalization, and performativity. Thank you, Lauren. Um, 
Our next speaker is Justin Benjamin. Justin is a recent graduate of Dalton. He's, been, he's going to take a gap year, and he's going to go to Yale. He is currently an intern at What Happens Next. Go ahead, Justin. Thanks so much, Larry. During my quarantine, I seriously debated taking a year off with myself, my friends, and my parents. Then I eventually came to what I think is the right conclusion. In my mind, college has two primary functions, providing strong tertiary education and also hosting a space where students can meet like-minded individuals. In a COVID world, I believe college failed to accomplish either of these things. Information taught online is much more difficult to pass on because many university professors have optimized their classes for in-person learning after years in the classroom. Given COVID's temporary nature, by the time professors have become proficient in online teaching, such skills will likely not be necessary. From being stuck in Zoom meeting rooms to watching my teachers struggle to share their screens, I have firsthand experience with how rocky this transition can be. I have observed that both students as well as teachers feel more exhausted after participating in an online class than one in person. This is because having to sit in the same bedroom for hours and hours on end is not as engaging as being close to one's peers inside a classroom space. To make matters worse, distraction is easily accessible online. If you have not checked Facebook or Instagram in the middle of a class or a meeting for the rest of you, then you are a far better person than I am. Another important factor is the informal aspect of teaching. When I miss something in class, I can lean over and ask the person next to me what is happening. This aspect manifests itself in many of the interactions in the classroom. I met some of my closest friends and made strong connections with my teachers through informal conversation in the minutes before and after class. These conversations are an integral part of the educational experience because they allow us to better connect with one another. While the teaching may still be somewhat intact, the social life for a college freshman will be non-existent. I have found that Zoom is much better at preserving relationships than forging new ones. Meeting people online is stiff and unpleasant as both people must remain stationary while navigating their technological ineptitude. In person, a conversation can come to a pause as both people are thinking, but online, I know that awkward silence lasts a decade. Without the ability to either establish a core network of long-term relationships or attend fun social events, a key part of the college experience is lost in the transition to online learning. I want to take a second to acknowledge that I am fortunate to have the opportunity to take a gap year. Not everybody has the resources to take a year off and pursue an unpaid internship or other activities that would be an investment in one's future. As I'm currently in the middle of figuring this out, if anyone has an idea, I'm all ears. At the end of the day, a college graduate receives two very different things an interesting and fun education, as well as a credential that sends a market signal in the form of a diploma. Anybody that does not defer will still receive that credential, but both their experience and their education will be greatly diminished. Thank you. Okay, our next speaker is Judah Huberman. Uh, Judah recently graduated from Walter Payton High School in Chicago and is going to be an incoming freshman at the University of Chicago in the fall of 2021. Judah will be talking about why he's taking a gap year instead of attending the university right away this fall, and instead he's going to take a job in Israel working for the Megan David Adam Ambulance Service. Judah, why don't you take it away? Thanks, Larry. 
So I was accepted early decision to the University of Chicago in December, and my plan was to major in biology and then go straight to medical school. My lifelong plan is to be a doctor. But in early July, I received an email from U of C with onerous restrictions due to COVID that made me consider taking a gap year. I knew if I took a gap year, it must involve medicine in some capacity. Unfortunately, when I researched various one-year programs available in the U.S., they ranged from ski instruction to outdoor wilderness survival. None were designed to further my medical training. One morning, after enjoying my daily cardio session, I stumbled across Aardvark, an Israeli gap year program where students would take classes for credit with an internship program. One available internship was with Magen David Adom, which maintains Israel's ambulance system. Through Aardvark, students take a 10-day course, and then they get paired with a fully certified paramedic. Students serve in an ambulance for four eight-hour shifts each week. The program lasts about four to five months. My hope is that by working in an ambulance, I will get acclimated with medical emergencies that will help me in my medical school training. Helping someone with a cardiac arrest is real and much different than learning in a classroom. I savor the opportunity to save a life. There's something else you need to know about me. My dad and my grandparents are both Israelis. I went to Anshea Med until high school. I learned to speak Hebrew in school and at home, and I practice with my grandparents whenever I get a chance. I thought that this might be a unique opportunity to explore a country that I love. One thing that concerned me was time. If I was going to become a doctor and spend most of my 20s attending college, medical school, and getting trained in residencies, was taking an additional year off in my best interest. Could I afford another year of no income? I probably will not earn a dime till I'm 30. Isn't that already a problem? Even if I decided to take a gap year, was living in a foreign country the best option? While no domestic programs offer the first-hand experience that Aardvark does, there are still plenty of EMT and woofer certification courses in the Chicagoland area. Going to Israel would mean saying goodbye to my family for nine months. With COVID protections, I will probably not be able to see my parents, grandparents, or siblings for a long time, as a winter break visit from my parents is not viable given Israel's strict COVID policies. I talked it over with my dad. He told me not to worry about distinguishing life advancements 10 years out and that this type of thinking does nothing but drive you crazy. Focus on the here and now. Life will work itself out. So I decided to follow my dad's advice and go to Israel. Now that I've made my decision, I'm pumped. This call is being recorded in advance because as of 45 minutes ago, my flight to Tel Aviv is in the air. Mom, if you're listening, I love you very much, and please don't forget to write. Perfect. Thank you, Judah. All right, that ends, that en- ends our uh, presentations, and now we go to Q&A, and I'm going to start with Judah. Judah, my first question for you is, which of the University of Chicago owner's restrictions upset you the most, uh, and that really encouraged you to take the gap year? So for me, the, the thing that struck me the most was the education component in the email it was written that any professor for any reason, they didn't really have to give a reason, they could just decide if they wanted to, could go completely online. Um, And so the feeling was, I talked to the few people I know going there, and the feeling was that most, if not all, my classes would be online and I would be studying out of my dorm. So you made the decision to, to, you were going to live on 
at the dorms no matter what? You were going to work from home? No. Um, I decided to um, live on the dorms just because I talked it over with my parents, and um, we, we both decided that it would be better for me to be out of the house. I get that. And what is it about the online experience that you thought was going to be problematic? Did you think you wouldn't learn as much? It wouldn't be as fun? What, what was it about you? So for me, when I took – so CPS, Chicago Public Schools, went online um, after COVID hit Chicago pretty hard, and there was a sizable difference between classes in person and classes online. When you're in person, you can stay after class and ask a teacher a question. You can come in early and ask a question. Um, when the teacher doesn't fully understand your question or when you don't fully understand an explanation, it's much easier to communicate that, whereas if you're trying to explain something online, A, teachers have very strict office hours, and a lot of times I found that my teachers weren't available. So that was definitely a concern with online classes at UChicago. Going to this uh, gap year job you took, what is the appeal? Is it the fact that it's in Israel? Is it the fact that it's an ambulance service? Um, what, what's the real appeal here? Yeah, so the, the biggest appeal for me is that I'm actually in an ambulance. Um, a lot of medical gap year programs will, you don't get the firsthand experience. You're either in a classroom or you're helping file data and maybe you get to see a surgery here and there, but you're not really in the thick of it, whereas with the Audenbrock Magenda Vida Dome program, you're in an ambulance. It's you, it's a paramedic, and you're responding to 911 calls. And do you think that these ambulance experiences will be highly relevant to your medical training? Of course I do. Uh, there's really, you know, like I mentioned before, when you're learning about something, it's one thing, but when you're actually experiencing it, when someone is, God forbid, bleeding out, and you have to know exactly what am I supposed to do, how do I help this person, that's why you go to medical school to learn that, among other things. And so having that experience before going to medical school, I think, will serve me tremendously. Um, a couple of months ago, we had Jordan Shiner on the show, and he was debating uh, how to open up Camp Horseshoe. Uh, you were planning to be a counselor at Camp Horseshoe because of frictions placed by the county. Um, how did you take it, and how did you end up spending your summer? So I was pretty devastated. Um, not so much for me. Obviously, I was incredibly excited to be back for another summer on staff. It would have been my 10th year there. But also, I, I was devastated for specifically all the campers and cabin 14ers. Um, I know Jordan and Camp Horseshoe remedied, remedied the lost summer with a sailing trip and a, and a week at camp, but it really isn't the same as being able to be leaders in the camp. So I, I really felt horribly for those kids. Um, so... During the summer, you know, I've tried to spend a lot more time with my family. I know we were really locked together in quarantine, as you can imagine, for three months, but we took a few road trips together. We spent time, you know, going on hikes, being in the wilderness that we really haven't had the opportunity to do. Um, I was working with um, two of my really close friends from camp, Nati uh, Lewis and Andrew Lux. I was helping them out. They were running a basically summer camp light where we would do activities with city horseshoe kids and so I was helping them out periodically with that and that really ate up a lot of my time 
during the summer. Great. Thank you, Judah. Uh, let's move so on to our, our next speaker. And good luck in Israel and have a great time. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, our next, my first, our next question goes to Jennifer Bloom. Uh, Jennifer is the College of Michigan counselor. Jennifer, in your book, you highlight and you discuss today this idea of a spike. Uh, as I interpret it, that means in your application, you want to tell a story about yourself, and you need to add details to this narrative. Now, you're suggesting that COVID is giving an opportunity uh, to give you more time to be more selective as to how you build that spike. Uh, you gave some examples of it. Um, I know that a lot of kids are sitting around not being a uh, particularly active in building their stories. How do you get them to get up and go to work and really um, pursue what are, they want to make is their interests? Yeah. So um, my strategy for admissions is really deciding that or, or it really can be summarized as the idea of be alike but spike. So that means that students need to fit in or perform as least as well as other students on certain metrics like grades, standardized testing, and some in-school leadership. But since 80% of applicants to college are typically academically qualified for that school, they have the right grades and test scores, um, successful applicants also have kind of a, an area which, in which they stand out or spike in a specific area. Um, and it can be in anything from, you know, veterinary medicine to, uh, you know, budding economist to photography, theater, um, you know, art history really are the range um, uh, of different areas. Um, so most students kind of, when they start to first work with me, they understand this kind of um, the strategy. And, uh, you know, I guess my encouragement would be, you know, if you genuinely enjoy, you know, this, this spike, and, and a spike should be something that you obviously genuinely, authentically enjoy pursuing, um, then, you know, it's about brainstorming ways that you can continue to pursue it with these restricted conditions. So, um, you know, clearly there are some, you know, some service work has been really, really challenging um, because, you know, a lot of the community centers are closed and a lot of the kids that are kind of um, most underserved, they don't have Wi-Fi in their homes and they don't have tons of devices to use and they're not able to access, access over Zoom. Um, so it really is about being creative and maybe it's doing outdoor classes. Maybe it's, you know, finding different ways to explore your spike and realizing that maybe that, you know, community centered service work is going to have to wait until the spring, um, you know, hopefully before. But, you know, those are the kinds of conversations I'm having with students typically on a daily basis. And, um, and there are a lot of really creative ways to continue to kind of build your area of interest, explore it um, under these conditions. Now, Does that answer uh, your question? Of, that's fine. Um, a lot of kids are going to take a gap year this year. Mm -hmm. um, as you said, it's, maybe it's around 5 to 10% of all the students. Um, but a bunch of kids also um, maybe taking a year off who are not freshmen, but uh, sophomores, juniors, et cetera. It, it, I mean, it's like a, a lot of kids are going to be coming through the pike here. Um, will that make admissions even much more difficult than usual with these campuses going to have this huge increase of additional people coming in? Are the kids who are taking freshman gap years taking the spots of seniors this year? 
you know, there's no way around this question. And because, as I said in my talk, talk, you know, what's eminently clear when you speak to these admissions officers, um, gappers are privileged kids. So will they have an impact on, you know, fall 2021 admissions? It's definitely possible. I know some colleges are really aware of this, and they said they're increasing freshman class size to counteract the impact of gappers, um, but others aren't. So, you know, I, I think that it's, you know, I think applying ED to a reach, but a realistic reach um, is something that's probably more important than ever this fall. Okay. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, my next question is for Jeremy. Jeremy, um, you just listened to 11 young people talk yeah. about how they're taking on the world. Um, and your talk was about two types of swimmers. You call it the strong swimmers and the weak swimmers. When you, you just listened to 11 strong swimmers, what do you make of, of, of their strengths and how they've been able to counteract? And I didn't invite any weak swimmers on the call. Um, what, how would you contrast what you've seen today versus what else exists out there? Yeah, once again, phenomenal question. Uh, it, it boils down to the combination of external internal factors. Um, these really good swimmers are creative. Um, they have resources. They have, I think uh, Judah commented that his dad gave him some really good feedback. It was really sound feedback. And just being able to give them the confidence to do different things and the, to lean into the, 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 the oddity and the, I don't know what's next, but I'm going to try it anyway, because some of their core um, realities are actually really strong. And so the difference between the kids who do struggle, um, whether I'm working with them one-on-one -on -one or there is some resource in their lives that they can anchor onto can make a difference. Let's say they're an athlete. They have to continue practicing their craft. Let's say they are a dancer, but they don't have tons of financial support. Is there a way for them to continue to dance? Is there a way, um, plenty of musicians out there of all levels, to continue to play their, their instrument? Um, the things that they do, that the, the not-so-good swimmers, I'm just encouraging them to make sure that they are still doubling down on those skills that they do know how to do and not give up on that. Um, those make a big difference as opposed to just kind of the giving up mentality or I just don't know what to do. Um, so that's a difference. The ones who really can swim that we're, we're listening to today um, really are implementing many of the things. Even your son was like, yeah, I'm starting to ride my bike now. I mean, that was one of the, I, I couldn't do this, but now I'm able to do that. And so that, that attitude is really what the good swimmers are able to do but the ones who struggled really need um, to hear it from, from leaders, whether it's their parents or a grandparent or a, or, or a teacher to kind of keep that encouragement up and make sure they're doing the things that they did know how to do and don't give up on those things they do well. Hi, Jer Jeremy. This is this is Rick Banks. Let me jump in with a, a quick question here. I'm, I'm, I mean, this is these are very useful strategies, and it's a, it's a useful overview. Uh, from the mental health perspective, are there long-term consequences of of COVID for young people that you're worried about or see signs of now? Uh, unfortunately, for some, yes. And what it is, it's 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 a kind of a built-in negativity. And so what happens is different theories as to how the mind works. And one is in the kind of a self-efficacy model. Once you start believing you can't do something, you start applying that to everything. And then if your life is struggling, you can then say, look, I'm struggling because of COVID. I'm just now not going to try. 
And that is really oppressive. And so the idea is to find those little nuggets that allow people to kind of capture one or two positive steps and keep expectations reasonable. Um, We're trying to get through this. The truth is we're going to get through it. I don't know what it's going to look like in a year, but we're all trying to predict. But to Rick, to your point is, I I believe the, 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 the not overly investing and, and making that negativity part of your, your narrative, part of your entire theme, like, ah, oh, it's just not going to work, and I don't have to do much right now. Yeah, and then you're going to come out in a year, two years, where everybody's going to keep accelerating, and they're going to be kind of just really struggling. And so it's really to make sure we're focusing on a couple small positives and really focus on that to make sure they just don't take on the identity that just nothing's going to work, just that, that defeatedness. And um, that's, that's, the, that's the areas that I'm focusing on with the, with the kids, well, not only the kids, but the young adults who are struggling, not to, not to overly attach to that negativity. That is, that is great. Those, those are great insights. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Rick. Jeremy, some, um, I'll call it, the, we'll go back to the bad swimmers. Um, they were living in a, a specific, behaving in a certain sets of norms in a certain environment, and they were struggling. Um, and when the norms get changed and when, you know, life is turned upside down, it kind of gives them another, another bite of the apple. How many of the people you're dealing with who were struggling previously have been able to kind of reorient themselves and get themselves out of this rut? You know, I don't know what like a, a percentage-wise, but what I can say is what I am is I'm a realist and I'm always hopeful, and that's part of my DNA. But what happens is the kids who are struggling or the young adults who are struggling that get one piece of hope or optimism, it could be a supervisor or it could be a friend, that one little nugget, it can help pull them out. And I think, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I find that, that when, when they are down, when they are struggling, that don't underestimate that, that kind act, that reaching out to someone, checking in on someone, just saying, hey, thinking of you, those things matter. And you don't know they matter until a year later when they said, man, I was in a dark place and the fact you pinged me, you threw me that text just to check in, that just was that little piece that helped out. I'm not asking everybody to be responsible for everyone else. I'm just saying that if you have a positive vibe and you, you, have, you want to throw a little positive vibe someone's way, do it. It makes a difference. So that, that giving nature um, can really help the people who are struggling. And then sometimes they get that one little piece of energy and that breaks them out of that cycle. And then all of a sudden they're applying for that extra job and then bam, they get that job and now they got some built instruction. Then they got income. So it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a grit. It's kind of like don't give up and don't give up on others who are also struggling. Uh, next question is for Anna Shell. Anna, um, you talked a little bit in your discussion about mental health for some of your peers. What is your perception among your peer set of things that young adults are doing, doing well to succeed and or some people might have mental, uh, mental problems? Yeah, for sure. So I think I mentioned it briefly, but I think trying to maintain that support network is just utterly vital. Um, so I think, and this can be really hard to initiate for sure, but reaching out to people when you need help is really important. And I've noticed even, I mean, you don't need to be explicit, but if, if you're feeling lonely, you know, you're stuck in your room on a Friday night thinking about you know, all the things you could have been doing um, if times were normal and you just kind of feel that, that sense of spiral, just text someone, call someone, reach out. 
um, communication here. I mean, this is really cliche, but it's really key. Um, so I've noticed that that for my friends has been just super helpful in them kind of just maintaining a positive outlook and, and like healthy, like, you know, um, healthy patterns and, and, and practices, but I think for sure just letting yourself like sit and stew within your head. We already have way too much time thinking alone, um, alone in our room, so I think connecting with others is just so important. Audrey, I wanted to follow up something that you were talking about with regard to uh, normal behavior during college. We just said you were on four hours sleep and having a hangover, and now you're, uh, you're home and you have a very happy and strong family. I think you're getting more sleep and you're less stressed. Um, when you talk to your peer set, how do, what are you hearing about their mental health and their ability to just kind of slow things down and take a breath and, and enjoy? So it's actually interesting. What I've found is there's really two groupings among my friends. There's either people who have really increased their unhealthy habits exponentially or just cut out all their unhealthy habits completely. So, for instance, I found that some people are, have completely quit drinking, quit smoking, and quit doing the destructive things that they were kind of that kind of became habit during college. Then I've also seen the flip side where people have been very unhealthy and have been basically drinking throughout the entire day. And I've seen terrible mental health consequences um, from that. So I think part of the thing that's so vital in maintaining your mental health is just acquiring new healthy habits that really aren't encouraged in college. And I think quarantine's get given um, a unique opportunity for young people like myself to kind of start a new health lifestyle. Jeremy, could you comment a little bit about that, about drinking and smoking and what's being <laughs> out there? Audrey just nailed it. That was really on point. Um, and you don't know, always know in advance who's going to lean towards like getting it together versus some who are just going to start to kind of get swallowed up. And so I think that, I think the challenge is, is um, if someone is in that dark place, if, if, if you see your friends who are just going to continue to just fight the, the reality that they're in and they're going to continue to drink, they're going to continue to smoke, they're, they're saying they're, they're, they're rebelling. They're saying, no, I'm going to, this is my way. This is what I want. Um, that's going to be a mess. That's going to be a car crash. And, and sometimes, you know, intervening on them, it's more the people who are like trying to reach out and trying to do better. Um, and that, that's not so easy. So there's definitely that, that split. You kind of get the bell curve. You get a, no, do you, excuse, the, excuse the analogy, but the kind of flattening of the bell curve where you're actually seeing kids who struggle, struggle more, and the kids who do well are like, yeah, now I'm going to actually exercise. I'm actually going to start eating better. So, again, I think you can't reach everyone, but to the last two um, speakers who are saying we, it's not only reaching out to them. If you need help, you have to find help. That's the goal, and, and that's not the easiest thing. And but uh, if you see your friends struggling, say something, say something positive, or actually get them to do something that's different than drinking. Like let's go for that walk, let's get outside in the sun, let's go take that run. Um, those things add up. So I think it's really supporting each other as much as possible. I want to move to, uh, to, to Charlotte for a second. Charlotte, you said something really interesting about. Um, what makes a successful online experience and what makes an unsuccessful online experience. And your high school, Stanford Online High School, you said was really successful and Vanderbilt's 
spring semester was not very successful. And it was because there was both no student buy-in and no faculty buy-in. Charlotte, what do you think is going to change in the fall semester to get either faculty or student buy-in? And what do you, have you noticed anything different in your first two weeks as it relates to that? Are people more excited about the technology, or is it going to be more of the same? It's a combination. Um, so in the first week, I actually have seen some improvements from the last semester. Um, something that I was going, I, you know, thought of to discuss prior to the semester starting is how um, schools need to work more to encourage their students to be kind of facilitators of this change and to work to have this be more of a permanent, positive mindset. Um, and what I've noticed is that they actually have done that. And so, for example, in almost all of my classes um, in this past week, they've reached out with either a survey or in class and are asking students, how is this going to be best for you? What should I do to make this learning experience most positive? Um, how do you learn best? Obviously, this isn't something that people are used to. So the teachers are trying to adapt, which is really reassuring to see. Um, and the students are getting better. It's, I feel like, still a bit of a struggle on our end. We are um, in a hybrid format, so I'm lucky to be back on campus. But students are having kind of a negative mindset, too, that um, it could be better. We could be fully on campus. Things could be back to normal. Um, so while the professors are doing better on their end, I believe, I think it's a matter now of students um, taking it into their own hands and realizing, you know, as Jeremy and Anna both said too, um, we should be lucky that we're here and we should feel grateful that we have this opportunity and we're kind of in an exciting field of new change here. This is maybe just a little bit more sudden than we realized, but I believe that online school was kind of something that was inevitable. So, I mean, it's all about accepting the positive side of this and working with it and moving forward. Hannah, um, this is my daughter, Hannah. Hannah, you, um, you mentioned the difference between the spring semester and summer. And I'm wondering why the summer programs were so much better than uh, the springs. You mentioned, I, I know, for example, that the people who had the most trouble were some of the elderly faculty members who couldn't adapt to the two te technology. And I, I think that your summer school teachers were either grad students or very young faculty who were maybe more in line with this uh, you know, Zoom and online education processes. Why do you think the summer was so much better than spring? Was it student buy-in? Was it the faculty buy-in? What, what made it better? I think it was a mix of all of those things. Um, I think the biggest aspect was the fact that these courses were made for an online format and every activity we did was made so that for the format um, but it was also definitely student buy-in I resonated with a lot of what Charlotte said during the summer I knew what I was signing up for and appreciated the fact that it was going to be online versus in the spring where it was kind of thrust upon me and I wasn't as willing to commit to this new format. Okay. Um, this is Rick Banks. Larry, let me follow up with a question for, for your daughter. Uh, so this is for Hannah, Charlotte, and Audrey, the current college students. Uh, so you all are all um, uh, not 
on campus because your, your dorms are not open. Uh, but what if the dorms were open? Uh, I'm interested in how would you balance the uh, desire to have a social life on campus on one hand against the uh, possibility uh, of becoming ill and contracting COVID on the other? So if, if the dorms were open, uh, would you move in? Do you think lots of your friends would move in? And then how do you think people would behave and, and why? Would they uh, engage in social distancing or would they see social distancing as unrealistic or undesirable uh, given the loss of social life it could entail? So Charlotte, Hannah, or Audrey? Yeah, uh, I this mean, is Charlotte. I'm sorry, want to go ahead. <laughs> well, I, you already see at Penn, um, there's currently an Instagram group called Irresponsible Penn that has been taking pictures of students partying in houses off campus. Um, and I definitely don't think it's a surprise. I feel like if there were, there was dorm living, you would see the exact same thing as kids being not exactly responsible. Um, I do think, you know, it might be worth it for the social experience, especially for freshmen who don't know anybody, um, but it is a touchy situation. Um, this is Charlotte. I want to jump in just because um, Vanderbilt does give students the option this year to live on campus. Um, especially for the freshmen too, they're actually required to live on campus. Typically, students have to live on campus all four years. Um, but they did provide upperclassmen with the option to live off campus. I chose to live off campus, but I did want to be um, nearby. So I'm here, but a lot of students are in the dorms. And so far, knock on wood, it has been a positive experience. Um, I have heard of absolutely zero parties on campus. Maybe I'm out of the loop, but I actually think everyone has been following it very responsibly. The, um, the administration has also been very strict and said that they will expel anyone if they find that they've been breaking the rules here about COVID, you know, guidelines, social distancing, whatever. Um, but I think the students have respected that. And so far it's been very positive. People are still getting together, still socializing, but they're doing it responsibly. Hi, this is Audrey. Oh, sorry, um, just jumping in super quickly. Um, I think another thing that's difficulty in weighing that aspect is something that's sometimes forgotten about is how isolating it feels um, when you're in a college campus away from family, especially during Corona. Not that that would necessarily lead to parties, but definitely large group gathering. You see this a lot in freshmen where it's very hard to kind of be by yourself. So I think that that would definitely um, play a large piece into the likelihood of social gatherings, not really a matter of wanting, but more of a need for connection. All right, uh, next question is for my son, Jonathan. Jonathan, um, a little less than two days ago, Northwestern announced that they were um, gonna, not going to allow for dorm living at Northwestern. Uh, you had, we had signed you up to, to live in a dorm. How did you react to it? What is your current plan? How are you going to adjust to this uh, restriction? I was pretty devastated, but it was an outcome I expected. Um, so I took the proper precautions. I got an apartment uh, right next to Northwestern about 100 feet off campus. So um, that's what most freshmen and sophomores are doing, and that's what my next four months are going to look like. And, and maybe to follow up with Hannah, um, you 
live on a domus, which is an off-campus apartment because the campus dorms are closed. Um, again, it's a few hundred feet from campus. Um, how many of your friends live in the building? I know one of the Haganis, Mark Hagani, is living in the building. Is it is it a party? What's going on? Do you view yourself as a pod? What is the uh, how is the building or this this synthetic dorm life been like? I just recently moved in, so I didn't get a chance to really see what it was like. But I was definitely shocked to see how many students were there. When I was moving in, I was moving in with like at least 20 other students, and there was there was young people everywhere. Um, but I do get the feeling that it's a pod where, I mean, people social distance, I guess, together, uh, but definitely a very social environment, hopefully with the correct precautions. Yeah, I hope so, too. All right. Um, I want to talk with Lauren Teichholz next. Lauren, when I was um, at Penn in the mid-1980s, uh, my professor, Walter Licht, uh, would say in class how bummed out he was, how politically inactive we were. Um, we were keeping our heads down, all of us, or many of us, trying to get Wall Street jobs. And he said that when he was our age, he was demonstrating in the streets um, against the Vietnam War um, or for other political causes. What, what is it about this TikTok that is different um, that allows for this echo chamber of political activism? Uh, how are you and your friends participating? How does it make you feel? And um, do you think it's good or bad? What, what do you make of this whole thing? Um, I think that Gen Z is like a very politically active generation. I'm not quite sure why. I think we've seen, I mean, we came after the millennials, and I think a lot of people saw the millennial generation as not being as active and wanted to do something to fix that. I also think having a platform like TikTok, which is almost exclusively used by people in Gen Z, makes it easier to just communicate across a generation. But I'd say overwhelmingly, I think of it as a good thing, because I think that, I mean, not to like toot our own horns, but like I think that we've made a really big change and a lot of people in Gen Z really, we really pride ourselves on being the generation that's going to want to make real change. Okay. Um, let's transition the discussion a little bit. Um, we've spoken a lot about dorm living and class living and we now have some young adults who are out in the real world working, um, but just not in an office. Um, so Kyle Rosenbluth, I'm going to start with you. You know, you said you were working up in Alberta, you were working on your film, and then you ended up, um, you know, above the garage probably in your parents' house in Jackson Hole with your buddy uh, working on the film. How, was, how did that make you feel? How, is, if you just have one close friend, like your partner, was that enough socially to feel comfortable? And when you're working 100% on your work, um, and you got to walk around outside in that beautiful setting in Jackson Hole. Was that sufficient, or did you feel some sense of uh, of loss? Yeah. Um, well, I guess the first thing I'll say is that that my my business partner Daniel, who's also my best friend, has been my my closest friend since college, and we've spent a lot, you know, a lot, a lot of time together. So to us, it was it was kind of nothing new um, or unusual. Um, 
And I think, you know, it, it did help us with our work in a, in a, in a sense, but in other regards, you know, I definitely missed the, the socialization with other people. It's, it's really nice to be able to hang out with other people and talk to other people. And, and I think I was very lucky to be out here and, and we have a few friends out here, but um, it's definitely not ideal and what I was expecting coming out of college. Um, but we adapted. And the creative arts that you're in is sometimes a very solitary, uh, solitary work. And so you, you, in that editing room, it's just you know the two of you, which I think is, I imagine, be like. What are, what are your personal next steps? Are you going to write another screenplay? And then how are you going to, you know, get this your film out there? Yeah. So, you know, as I as I discussed a bit in the talk, we're now, you know, in the final stages of of raising our last bit of funding and submitting to film festivals that will happen in kind of the winter and early spring. <clears throat> the the delay on these on these festivals for when you have to submit and when they actually happen is, is quite large. Um, so there is a period of time in which we'll continue writing, working on new screenplays, um, and hopefully as things slowly start to open up a bit more, um, get some actual production and shoots on the calendar. And you, you talked briefly about the changes in the film festivals. Um, you know, I've gone to some of these film festivals. The film I wanted to see was sold out. I wait in long lines. Um, maybe I'd see one show. Um, it doesn't seem like it was made for the consumer at all, but you heard that the film festivals were really a way for uh, filmmakers to market their films to, um, I don't know, broadcasting, people that take, who buy films. How do you imagine film festivals will change going forward? I think I see, I, I still see them as largely being a industry event um, and kind of an opportunity for, for new and upcoming filmmakers to showcase their work in a place where otherwise it, it would have no venue to, to be seen. Um, but I, I said briefly, and I think it, it does have good benefits for the consumer and, and the viewer. Um, someone who wants to go to these film festivals and see these films can now do it online. And there's no, there's no capacity, you know, there's no kind of physical theater that, that limits the number of people. There's no waiting online. I, I think for, for a film lover or someone who wants to take part in these festivals, the, the online move can actually serve some benefit. Next question is for Jess. Jess, I was talking to your dad the other day, and he said that he had uh, a dinner with uh, Michael Corbat, who is the CEO of City. And Vic asked, Mike, you know, how is your life different? And he said, my life is better. I used to be on a plane nearly all week going to visit clients. Now I get to hang out in my office and enjoying a beautiful view in, uh, of a mountain in Jackson Hole. Uh, but the real losers are the young people, young people who don't have a decent apprentice program who can't learn from some of the older and wiser professionals they work with. You mentioned that you, you were still learning. How common is, is KKR doing something right that you're learning so well? What are you hearing from your peers? Uh, how much decline in productivity and learning are you experiencing? What are you hearing among your peer set? Yeah, good question. Um, 
No, you know, I am definitely incredibly lucky to be at a place like KKR that cares so much about the junior development. Um, Just in the past six months, we've had um, 40 new joiners at the analyst associate level out of 99 for the year globally join. Um, And look, like it's definitely not easy starting a new job for anyone, but especially in, in a virtual world, it takes longer to get up to speed. You miss out on building relationships and hearing, you know, the bullpen chatter that I was talking about before. That's all critical things to really build up your understanding of the business and, and your day-to-day tasks. Um, KKR is trying, you know, exceptionally hard to, you know, mitigate all of those things that we're missing out on to ensure that we're still able to build connections. Like they have different breakout groups and this thing called KKR Connections where we are encouraged to, we're assigned, um, you know, somebody else across the world to connect with virtually and make sure that we're able to build that relationship. Um, but yeah, I mean, across my peer set, I would say that people in private equity are having a, a similar experience. I think that some firms are kind of getting ready to to go back to New York after Labor Day, um, but KKR is, is definitely playing it on the safer end and really have, have just communicated they are, you know, their biggest priority is employee safety and happiness. And um, they've been great with serving all of us and, and especially at the team level, making sure that we all feel re- really comfortable and, and happy to the extent that we can in this environment. Jess, um, I started at Salm Brothers as a financial analyst. Um, and I worked pretty long hours my first few years. Let's say 50 <laughs> hours a week. I would work I'm Saturdays sure. and Sundays. Um, what, what is your experience like in, in terms of hours, in terms of stress, um, in terms of work effort and performance? Um, are you still busting your ass as hard? Is the stress down? Are you able to plan your day better? Um, is there no like hours where you're just hanging around waiting to get assignments? What what is the life of, a, of an analyst today, particularly under COVID specifically? Yeah, good question. I would say, um, you know, at KKR, there's definitely no FaceTime, which has been a huge surprise and great benefit for me, especially coming from a year in banking where that was kind of the norm. So, you know, even if we're at the office, if you have nothing to do, you, you're kind of expected to leave, which is great. Um, but you know, it's still stressful during the day because your managing director can up, can come up to your computer and sit behind you and say, hey, run this and this and this and let me know what this is when you're trying to get something else out. And they can't really do that now, which is really great, I think, for, you know, principals and down um, to be able to just really focus on the task at hand. And when somebody reaches out to you, they really, really need it versus somebody just walking by your desk and grabbing your eye and making sure that, you know, you can run something for them. So that's that's great. And then the other thing is that, yeah, stress levels, I would say, on the whole in my team are way down. And, of course, you know, we're still super busy, and especially with, um, you know, the acquisition of Global Atlantic, we were working flat out weekends, you know, late into the night, et cetera. But for the most part, you have – you know, a lot more flexibility in your day. If you have an hour where something doesn't need to go out immediately, you can do a workout or you can go for a walk or, you know, have lunch with your family or call a friend, which is just, that just doesn't happen in the office. Um, so I, I know that I'm definitely going to miss that when we go back and it's been a treat to to spend all this time with my family here. Um, but yeah, hopefully they're going to be able to implement different um, ideas for the future of work, and, and I know that there's already a team within KKR who's working on that, um, whether it's having, you know, two days a week that are optional or, 
you know, maybe it's working virtual, virtual for July and August or a few weeks in the summer to give people increased flexibility. But I do think that all in all, there will be um, a positive change that comes out of this uh, for us. Josh Agani, when you hear your sister talking about her experience as a financial analyst, I know that uh, you were a financial analyst and, you know, you, you didn't love certain aspects about that program. What, um, how do you think that the program has, these programs have evolved to be more successful and do you think you would have enjoyed it more um, in this remote learning approach versus uh, being on the, on the trading desk at City? Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think Jess summarized it pretty well. Um, you know, I think the ability to, um, you know, to, to just take a moment away from the desk and to live your life is really key. And I think that, uh, you know, with, re- with more remote and more effort going in that direction, um, you know, not having to be at your desk surrounded by your bosses from, you know, 8.30 in the morning until 1 a.m. at night is, you know, is, is a really good thing. Um, you know, I think that also, I mean, I do think it's very group, group specific. I mean, my group was, was, uh, you know, was an, was an amazing experience, but it was definitely, you know, throw in the deep end experience. Uh, I think, you know, seeing a lot of my other friends who had, um, you know, analyst jobs across Wall Street, you know, was, you know, everybody had a different experience and it was, you know, I think if I were to go back in time, uh, I, you know, I'm not saying I would change it, but, you know, I think my advice to someone would be to really focus on the group, not on the, not on the company, right? Get a lot more specific into the people you're working with and the things that you're doing. I agree with that completely. I, I think it marries very much who you work for specifically, not so much the firm or even what the industry job is. Yeah. Josh, you've gone now from a two-year analyst program to becoming an entrepreneur and all the complexities that go with that. Um, I imagine the last six months have been just incredibly invigorating, complicated, and joyful. Um, can you describe what it's like to, to be an entrepreneur versus a two-year analyst, what you're learning, and how you find it fulfilling? Yeah. So I just want to say that in between being an analyst and, and my business, MiaShare, I worked for a company called Vertical Harvest, which was a small hydroponic startup here in Wyoming. And so that was a really good bridge between having a very structured uh, work to, to, you know, to then doing something on my own, you know, it was, I, I got to see, you know, I got to look at owners and, you know, people making decisions and how they were doing it for their small business. And then I think that gave, I just think it gave me a lot of tools and ways to, way to think through things. I think the way I would summarize it is, you know, now everything I'm working on has, you know, the outcome of that is, um, you know, is, is mine. Uh, not, I'm not talking from, you know, from a financial standpoint, I'm talking from a more, more from, you know, you know, my work is my ownership. So the Um, sun is still on your face. There you go. Yeah. Um, Josh. Oh, okay. And, um, um, no, it's all good. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it's been amazingly fun. Obviously, there have been moments where, you know, we're, we definitely freak out. And I think there's, there's going to be many more of those moments ahead. But, you know, overall, I, you know, we're in a really good place at the, at the moment. And we've got our, you know, we have our, 
you know, all of the KPIs and the things that we're looking for to, you know, to determine that this has been success and sort of go to that next level. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that answered um, that question. Okay. Um, Justin, you are taking a gap year, um, and I think it's imperative that you use this year for personal growth. Um, you've decided to be my intern on what happens next. Um, how would you describe uh, the position as a way of building your skills, learning? Um, is it what you want? And, you know, if you were recommending to other kids in, who are also on gap years, how should they think about how they should spend their time in their gap year? That's a really great question, Larry. So as for my current internship with what happens next, I think it's really important to get some work experience because for the, for the past 13 years, all I've known is school. And so I found many of the opportunities from just scheduling to finding new speakers to proposing and pitching them to you, Larry, have all been quite new to me. And I've learned so much just through trial and error and understanding what is best for the program. So as for the gap year in general, I think a gap year is a really great opportunity to trial something. For example, I've always been interested in, to go in going into finance, and a gap year is an incredible opportunity for me to dip my toes in the water and look for an internship in that field for a year and then angle my path in college towards pursuing it. Or if for some reason I don't find it as interesting, reassessing before I get to college and then deciding what direction I want to take my career in. Okay. All right. It's at this point of the show where I like to go around and ask people what they're optimistic about. Um, I have to say that this show has had almost no pessimism other than Jeremy's concern about the mental health for some young adults. Away from that has been quite positive. Um, Needless to say, we're still going to go with a positive angle. So I'm going to start this out with Charlotte. Charlotte, um, could you comment on something that you're optimistic about? Yeah, definitely. I'm super optimistic about the possibility for this technology that we have now, especially with schools, and how it can kind of unify the world. Um, I had a great experience, as I stated, in high school, and I definitely see that this technology is becoming more present, and it can unify people in countries such as South Korea, United States, wherever, um, people can get together and learn at the same time. And I feel like that's going to be something super exciting. It's scary right now, but it'll be great in the future. Super. Okay. Uh, Hannah Bernstein, what are you optimistic about? I think it's going to be a great semester where kids are more used to online format and teachers have more time to prepare a curriculum that's suited for online. Um, and I do think that, you know, kids will be able to find ways to uh, be around each other in safe ways, hopefully. Okay. Josh? Um, I'm optimistic about remote work and the technologies that, that allow for that. Uh, due, you know, I think primarily because of the efficiency it brings to business, but also, you know, as we heard on the call, uh, an improvement in quality of life. Jess? Um, similar to Josh, I'm, you know, I think that this time has really showed that you can get work done from wherever and it, it will often be better than 
previously sitting in the office. And that is hugely exciting for somebody who is just embarking on their career. Um, and that, you know, that could potentially be a possibility going forward, even working at a large corporate company. Kyle? I'm optimistic about the future of our mitigation of the coronavirus. And, you know, I've been following New York, and I think it's a good example of a place where if if you listen to the rules and, and you wear the mask, we can uh, get this thing down, and, and hopefully a vaccine comes soon. Okay. Jonathan Bernstein, what are you optimistic about? Hmm. Um, I'm optimistic that... Um, the COVID crisis will be overall a better thing um, that will impact my life. Um, it is a tragedy that my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college is not going to be the great, uh, the greatest, but um, I think it's going to really um, set us on a better track. So, yeah, that's what okay. I'm just about. Audrey, what are you optimistic about? Um, I'd say I'm most optimistic about young people's ability to make change, especially after this time. It was so awesome hearing everyone's unique perspectives and kind of the ways they've been able to create change in those areas. So I'm really excited for the future. Okay. Anna Schell? Um, something Jonathan kind of touched on earlier, but I'm very optimistic about how young people will appreciate time with people and especially time outside more. Um, knowing that, you know, those special moments you can't take for granted because how fast they can be taken away. Okay. Lauren, Ty Colts? Um, I'm optimistic about schools starting soon, whether they're online or in person, just because I think it's, it'll be really good to talk to other classmates and get to know my teachers. Justin Benjamin, what are you optimistic about? After hearing such fascinating perspectives today, I'm really optimistic that people, whether in college or they're taking time off, will find new ways to be resourceful in this time and discover different methods to pursue their passions. Great. I want to call on my co-host, Rick Banks. Rick, what did you make of all these kids today? What, uh, what, are, you, what are you both optimistic about, and, and what did you learn from uh, our, these 11 kids? Oh my, I don't know that we have enough time for that sort of big question, but I think that the, um, if it is, uh, it is inspiring to hear uh, the range of opinions and the ingenuity and the resourcefulness and the resilience uh, of our callers. So I think that all of the, the older generation uh, can take heart, that the young people are bringing a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah, I agree with, completely with that. Okay, so that ends our, our program for today. I just wanted to, again, reiterate what's happening next week. Um, we're going to be talking about education, and we've got speakers on testing, uh, data collection, on how to Im uh, improve calculus teaching by using online approaches. Uh, we're also going to talk about religion education, and we're going to talk about foster kids and education as well. So I think it's going to be a very exciting discussion. In three weeks, we're going to have a a discussion also about pandemic literature, and so I encourage everyone to read Catherine Ann Porter's short novella, Pale Horse, Pale Rider. Um, okay, that's it. I want to thank um, all my speakers, my 11 kids, Jeremy and Jennifer, too, um, and all of your listeners for listening in. Thank you very much. You can disconnect and have a great day. Thanks for everyone's participation. Bye-bye. Thanks, Larry. You're very welcome.